It's weird being the only woman in the room. The large majority of complaints about women is around their appearance. What makes you angry? Injustice, things that are unfair. The first key to being free is recognising that your freedom isn't going to come from the hands of your oppressor. I feel insanely entitled to exist. I'm exactly where I probably should be. And I don't have to apologise for that. Welcome to another episode of Brazen, the podcast sharing incredible stories from incredible women. I'm Susie Ferguson, and in this episode, we're going to hear from someone who's been at the forefront of women's issues for over 50 years. Dame Margaret Sparrow is practically the reason New Zealand has abortion at all. She fought for it when it was first introduced back in the mid-70s, was the head of the Abortion Law Reform Association of New Zealand for 32 years, between 1975 and 2011, and was still fighting for it right up until it was removed from the Crimes Act in March this year. She's also been a sex ed teacher, an author, even gave the snip to an uncle of one of the Brazen team. Amazing. We sat down on the sofas in her living room, and I started by asking what she believes was the turning point for finally taking abortion out of the Crimes Act and regulating it as the health issue it is. I think the tipping point was really in that election debate in September, October, when Jacinda Ardern was challenged about abortion and came out and, and, and said it shouldn't be in the Crimes Act. And I think that was something that resonated with people that it, it isn't a crime. It's a, it's a, <laughs> an, a, a very common and ordinary medical event. Nonetheless, there were so many men and women in Parliament who voted against it, the MPs. Were you surprised that so many people were still held such vehement views about it? Yes, there were 51 who voted against it. And the speeches for those opposed to it were very passionate and dominated the, the proceedings. And so did the submissions to the Select Committee. They were completely dominated by those who were opposed uh, to, to abortion. And I think that our parliament is perhaps not as representative of the general population, as we might like to think, even though with MMP we have um, greater variety. Um, but I think in the general population, there was a, a mood that said, this is, this is not right, it shouldn't be a crime, um, it, this is 19th century law. Do you think it came as a bit of a surprise to people that it was still in the crime? Oh, very much so, yes, yes. And that's understandable. I mean, none of us go around knowing all the bits of legislation that there, that, that there is, and there was no reason why people should. And uh, we passed that era where there were lots of criminal cases. Abortion literally being a crime was very common, of course, in our, in our history. And that really changed with the 1977 legislation that I was also in, involved with. 
And uh, although we realised that it was not what we wanted, um, it wasn't a satisfactory law by any means, and Parliament then was much more patriarchal than it is now, um, and women didn't have the choice, and even rape wasn't a, a ground. All, all of that was bad, but it got rid of the illegal abortionists. For the first time ever, it gave doctors a legal pathway to follow, and in the past, the medical profession had ignored abortion as not being, well, it was a crime, and doctors didn't get involved in in criminal procedures, and uh, there were abortions done for um, fetal abnormality or to save a woman's life, but very, very few others, so there was, really was a crime. Mm. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but just before we jump into that, you used the word patriarchal. Yeah. <laughs> um, it almost seems a bit of a surprise to me, as someone who was born in 1977, that men still get a say over what happens in women's bodies. Does yeah. that still shock you? Yeah, yeah, yes. Although we, we like to cite that we were first to have the vote and we had female prime ministers and so on, still on boards and in positions of authority, it's still very much dominated by men. Is it frustrating? Because change seems to be happening fairly glacially in terms of speed. Some things change quite quickly, though. I'm, I'm thinking of things like uh, the homosexual law reform, for instance, when that came through. There was a lot of build-up to that, and there was a lot of stigma and so on. But when the law actually changed, it did help people to move on. You were talking about the illegal practices that grew up because abortion is not new. This is something that's happened for thousands of years. Um, I read that you had an abortion a very long time ago. Yeah, that was a um, a self-abortion and uh, that was one of the first things that we tried. But not the first. I think when I had an unplanned pregnancy, the first thing you do is all those ridiculous things that people still still talk about, like um, falling downstairs and jumping and skipping and and hot baths. And, yeah, hot baths and gin and um, that, those are the things that you did. First of all, one of, the, one of the funny things I did was I took a whole lot of um, a product called Dewitt's pills. Uh, and it turned my urine blue, but it didn't do anything to the, to the pregnancy. Did you throw yourself down the stairs? No, I did not throw myself. I did a lot of skipping in, in the backyard, mm-hmm. uh, but I did not throw myself down the, down the stairs. When you found out you were pregnant, you were 21? Yeah. Were you frightened? Were you scared? Because I guess... You know, your options when you were 21 were very different to any options I had with an unplanned pregnancy when I was 21. If, you know, if, if I'd needed it, I could have got an abortion. A, a legal one wasn't an option for you. No, well, you certainly didn't even go to a doctor about that. That, that was un- understood. Neither did you have the advantage that young women have nowadays of doing a pregnancy test. There was not no such thing. 
the pregnancy test. So I knew because my cycles were very regular and I had some of the early warning signs. And my husband came from Christchurch and he knew all about a chemist there called George Bettle. And George Bettle was known in Christchurch. Most communities had a pharmacist or a midwife or a practitioner of uh, even some medical practitioners were known in their community for providing help um, for women. And my husband just knew that in Christchurch um, there was a saying, you married for better or worse. You know, it was as common common <laughs> as, as that. <laughs> Although you did have to ask around, you know, if my husband hadn't, hadn't known, you would have gone to, I don't know, your best friend or whatever. You'd, you'd have to work out what, what to do. And uh, I wrote away um, for his mixture. He sold a mixture. And it wasn't expensive. I think it was three pounds or something like that. And it came in a brown paper um, parcel. And it was one tablespoonful um, three times a day till you finished the mixture. Goodness knows what was in it. I was about to say, do you know what was in it? Absolutely no idea whatsoever. These are the risks that women took in those days. He was a pharmacist, that's all you knew, and pharmacists had knowledge and wouldn't be poisoning you, but who knows um, what was what was in it. How quickly did it work? Quite quickly, more or less as soon as I'd finished the mixture, and I just... I started um, bleeding and passed something. I mean, I was at work, it wasn't, it wasn't a bother, and I was early and it really wasn't traumatic. Everybody talks about this great trauma, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't traumatic. When you, I'm guessing, went to the toilet and, mm-hmm. and you know, found blood, yeah. having taken... Goodness knows what yeah. to, to cause this to happen. Yeah. Were you relieved? Yeah, yeah. And I could see that it wasn't just clear blood like normal menstrual period. There were um, yellowy flecks um, in it. I, I didn't examine it, but I could see that it was more than just my menstrual period starting again. And you flushed the loo? Yeah. And you went back to work? Yep. You didn't have yep. any, any pains or any cramps? or no, no. Gosh, it sounds like whatever was in the mixture was very effective. Yeah, yeah. And you can see why now um, I am um, involved in bringing in medical abortions for women because it's really just the same thing. But sometimes, sometimes there is heavy bleeding, so you have to warn people. Yes, it, it isn't. It isn't a piece of cake. I was going to ask you about that because I I have not had um, an abortion, but I have had a couple of miscarriages, and I'm one of those people who who bleed. I'm a bleeder. I've been told by doctors, um, and I suppose that can be quite frightening mm. for people to see, especially mm. if they're mm. like me, not yep. not science trained or yep. medically trained, and taking the morning after pill. I had uh, quite a painful experience with. I suppose that sort of abortion, the kind of the medically induced rather than any kind of surgical mm. procedure, must be 
much easier, much much quicker, much safer. I think women should have the choice, and I think you need to explain to them. And it depends a little bit on the stage of the pregnancy too. Obviously, I was very early, and I think things are always easier when they're when they're early. Mm. Um, and I think you have to warn people um, that with some um, people, uh, having a medical abortion is a two-stage procedure. You take the first um, medication, which stops the progesterone from act, acting, but doesn't always expel the fetus. And so you follow it 24 or 48 hours later with a prostaglandin, which encourages uterine contractions and expels um, the, the products. And um, you have to warn people that that um, experience can be painful and also that you need to watch out for heavy bleeding, which doesn't happen very often, but you need to warn people about, about it. And um, sometimes it, uh, it takes a while for that process to happen. And there are women who choose to have a surgical abortion because they say, look, I'm busy, I have this career, I want it done at 10 o'clock on Friday, and that suits me um, better. And yet there are other people who say, oh, I like the idea of a medical abortion. It seems more like natural, and they may have had a miscarriage and, you know, have experienced um, that. And, and so I think it's... Um, it's for the woman to decide when you explain to them what it means. Because you, um, not only were you involved in the importation of the, the, the pills, the medicine for those abortions, mm-hmm. you performed surgical abortions mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. What actually happens during a surgical abortion? How do, you, how do you do it? Well, the ones that I did were always early um, medical abortions in a clinic. So I can tell you what what happens with an early medical abortion. Mm. It's often quite a good idea to give people some medication to ease the pain, and that's usually through a vein. Mm. And then you have to dilate the cervix, Mm -hmm. and um, that can be painful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And then you have to insert a vacuum aspirator, like a tube, which is connected to suction, and then you have to suction uh, out the contents. And it's a very quick procedure. It doesn't take uh, take very long. Um, In the situation where I was, was, we always had uh, two nurses, one to assist me and one to assist the the patient. So she would be talking uh, talking through, um, explaining what's happening, and reassuring and and uh, people wanted to have their own music that sometimes um, helped so to try and make it um, as as comfortable for the for the woman as as possible but you're still lying on your back with your legs spread with somebody doing painful painful things so it's not a pleasant procedure nobody would say oh it's a piece of cake but on the other hand I don't think we should um, over-dramatise things. There are lots of people who say it's always traumatic, it's always always painful, and then you have to worry about getting complications. So I don't think we should exaggerate things, but I don't think we should minimise it either. And 
and uh, everybody's different and it just depends on the stage you're at and uh, people often think about that it's hard for young people but I think young people can cope with the procedure as well. Do you know the age of your of your youngest patient that you ever had to do an abortion on? Um, 14 would be the youngest, yes. But mostly we didn't do them because of their age. Um, they were often sent um, out of the clinic but to the main hospital where they could have a general anaesthetic. So for the majority of 14, 15, and there are not many, they're, they're very unusual, but um, for the majority of 14 or 15 year olds, or anybody who was extremely um, distressed for what, whatever reason and, and whatever age, um, sometimes it would be recommended that they have a general anaesthetic because even though they have a support person there and with young ones, the mother could be there if, if they had the um, support uh, of, of the mother. But generally speaking, we didn't allow other people into the into the room because it's not a, an environment where anybody other than a medical professional would feel really comfortable. But occasionally, um, that that seemed the most appropriate thing to do. How many abortions do you have you done? Do you have well, any idea? Thousands. Yeah. yeah. Do any of them stick in your mind? Yes, always the ones where something went wrong and you had to admit them to hospital. Um, and I suppose um, the very worst one for me was I, I, I caused a perforation uh, once where you go through the uterine wall. Yes, you always always remember when, when things go wrong. Mm. When you opened the clinic, or indeed while the, the clinic was open. Did you have protesters? Was yes, it? yes. What kind of things did did people say to you as you went to work? Well, they'd show gory pictures of late terminations or they'd shout abuse like murderer or they'd pray for you. And sometimes they would have great big grand events where there'd be... Um, huge numbers and, and placards and uh, WONAC, that's the Women's National Abortion Action Campaign, they were wonderful. They had a telephone tree and if they knew that there were going to be protesters there, they would come and counter-protest, which added, of course, more bodies to the, the goings-on outside the, um, the clinic, but it was good to also have have their um, support. So when sometimes um, in the 80s, um, particularly, there was a lot of protesting. I'd drive there and always think, I wonder what I'm going to see today. Is it going to be two usually elderly gentlemen holding their posters over the fence because they weren't allowed on the property? Mm. Or is it going to be one of these um, mass demos that they, that they occasionally put on so and also it went on outside the clinic as well I mean I had little crosses planted down in my garden and I'd have people on that traffic island holding posters and oh so outside your house as well yeah yeah 
I suppose the worst thing was my neighbour next door noticed a truck driver with a load of concrete um, wanting to load some wet concrete on my driveway where your car is, mm. is parked. And she knew that I worked at family planning on a Friday morning. And she rang and said, Margaret, you haven't ordered any wet concrete, have you? I said, certainly not. Um, so she went down and, and, uh, and stopped them. Having that level of intrusion at home as well as at work, did you, did you ever get things like death threats? Only once, only once. And uh, it was not a serious threat. So I never needed police protection. And certainly I never needed a bulletproof vest like they do in the, in the States. I think we're lucky here. Nonetheless, though, having that level of um, disruption and protest in your life, at your work, at your home, did it rattle you? Yes, yes. Um, but I always had support and always had good support net networks. I, I think um, the main thing I was concerned about was protecting my two children. Like, mm. I didn't like them answering the phone um, because sometimes you got abusive calls and I didn't want them to have to, to deal with that. How did you explain it to your children, what well, you did? Well, they knew that mum wasn't involved. Um, I, I would go to um, political meetings and sometimes I would be in the press and whatever. So they knew what mum mum was involved uh, in. And my mother was here at the, at the time and she supported what I did. I guess that must have made it easier, but, but like you say, when you've, when you've got people at your home and you've got your children maybe asking questions or you having to explain to them, I can see that that would be pretty stressful to deal with. Yes, yes. Um, but I still felt, felt that it was worthwhile. You, know? you still felt because you were doing the right thing yeah. it was worth it. I, I, I always had that feeling that what I was doing was right and that sooner or later people would... Other people would catch up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it took an awfully long time. And I think even now, it seems from things I read, even about women now, either women my age or younger, that we don't, as a, as a group of people, we don't know our way around our own bodies, our own reproductive mm -hmm. system terribly well. What was oh. it like for you growing up? Is, that, is it something that you were... You were taught, or what were you taught about sex? Absolutely nothing. I, I was of that generation where you didn't mention sex. It was no-no and keep your legs closed and um, be, a, be a good girl. And when I started my first period, I didn't know what was happening. I thought I must have cut myself or something. And my mother soon found out and, and, and told me. And... Uh, when I, when I discovered um, masturbation, I thought, it's amazing um, that nobody ever told me about this. You know, why would people not talk to you about something? So I thought that I must have discovered something new because <laughs> if, if, if it really was such a lovely feeling, everybody would have talked about it. So I thought... Obviously they don't. I must have 
really discovered something new. So, how old were you? Oh, I suppose I was eleven. Okay. Who did you tell? I I told uh, one of my cousins, and didn't make any sense to her. And the dictionary wasn't any help. Um, Self pleasure, self abuse. I learned the words through going in the dictionary, but it didn't really tell me tell me anything. One of my friends recently tweeted a picture without saying what it was, saying, who can guess what this is? And there were so many wrong answers. And it was a diagram of the clitoris that people didn't know what it was. And I suppose this is one of the things that I... I keep kind of coming back to this idea that how do people know how to find pleasure if they don't understand their bodies? But even as a doctor, you know, I concentrated on sexually transmitted diseases and, you know, mm. all the all the negative things. You don't talk to people about pleasure. Did anyone ask you about it when you were a doctor? Yes, sometimes, yes. I got um, quite involved in marital relationships, even simple things like a man saying, um, my wife loves sex, I am not able to... We we have a different um, level of oh, different of, sex of drives. Sex drive mm. from simple things like that to, to to real real problems. But it was very interesting in the seventies because then that was the time we were allowed for the first time to talk about orgasms and and so on. It, it became easier to talk about it. And did so, women then come to see you and say, "I've heard about this thing." Mm. How do I do it? Mm. And, and what was your advice? Um, I'd usually um, give them good books um, um, to read, um, and I had a you know a selection of things because in a seven-minute consultation you can't do a lot, but you can be accepting of what they say, and you can point them in. The, the right direction, or there might be courses, or you might be able to recommend. Even if you don't do it yourself, you can recognise a problem and you can steer them in the right, right direction. Mm. Yeah. Do you think one of the things that is problematic now is the messages we get from places? Mm. And a lot of people seem to be, or perhaps particularly teenagers, kids, seem to be getting their sex education through porn, women are sort of hyper-sexualized in imagery Mm -hmm. and it's impossible to live up to. What do you think that's doing to human sexuality and the pleasure that it should sort of be about in the main? Mm -hmm. I think there's a conflict, isn't there? Um, Because our... A private life is very much our, our private life. And to a certain extent, we're more comfortable keeping it private. And I don't want to talk about whatever I'm um, dealing with at the moment, except to perhaps a few trusted um, people. Mm. It's not something that you shout to the world about. I, and I think there's still a respect for privacy and intimacy that doesn't translate to everywhere else. So it's 
it's, it's quite difficult to know when you're being protective or secretive or, you know, closed in or repressed. And how much of that is genuine privacy? Um, so I think there's a, a conflict um, uh, there. Mm. Um, but you're right, and even as doctors, um, we're not always open to discussing and things. I, ca- I can remember uh, we came, I came away from a, a sexual health conference and I was sitting in the airport with a friend, a colleague, and I said, do you realise that we've just spent three days talking about safer sex? And nobody mentioned the word masturbation once. Surely it's the safest form. Mm. And she looked at me and she said, well, Margaret, you didn't get up and ask a question or make a comment. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, touche. Yes. So the next next time we were having a conference, I read up all about it. and it's a fascinating history, mm. and uh, and I had lots of uh, pictures and things, and uh, so I offered this presentation at the next conference. Well, it wasn't acceptable. There are more important things on the program, so it was uh, rejected. The next year, the following year, uh, we were the organising committee. So to cut a long story short, we did, and I think it was one of the more successful presentations that I'd edit up. And I can also say that there was never a sexual health conference from then onwards where the word masturbation didn't come up at least once. You mentioned the Me Too movement as well Mm. a little bit earlier on. What's your take on that as that's all unfolded over the last couple of years? It's about time. Yeah, it's been going on for a long, long time. And it's just given people the courage, the the ability to be able to talk about some of these very, very personal things. What do you do now? Because we've talked a lot about, you know, what you did in the past, what your career was. How do you see yourself now? Well, I'm I'm still a little bit involved in, in medicine uh, because I'm a company director of our little company, Ishtar. But um, the rest of the time, I... I regard myself as a retired person and I live alone with my 25-year-old granddaughter who, uh, I've got three granddaughters and the eldest one lives with me at, at the moment and I am getting used to feeling more retired and not having to do um, as much as I always have. Is that nice? Yes, although I miss I miss uh, being involved. I really enjoyed following the legislation on the abortion issue. Are you a bit annoyed that that clause got through about protests still being able to happen? Yes, yeah. We didn't get what we wanted. We got three quarters of what I would have liked. I think we should have had safe zones. I think they should have just been automatic. I think they should have chosen option A, which was women of all ages instead of this ridiculous cutting off point at 20 weeks. So we didn't get all that we wanted, but 
I'm pleased with what we did get. We might get there one day. The name of the podcast is Brazen. I think that means different things to different women mm. at, at different stages of their lives, perhaps. What does it say to you? Uh, it, it recalls back to my childhood and it would always be associated with brazen hussies. That's, that was my introduction to brazen. Would you describe yourself as brazen? <laughs> Perhaps not in that respect, but more generally? I'm a, I'm a mixture, really. Uh, you know, there's parts of me that are very conservative and parts of me that are totally way up there liberal. Just as we finish, we've talked for a very long time, and thank you very much. Oh, um, is there any? Is there a question? A question that you have ever wanted to answer? A viewpoint that you've ever wanted to give, but you've never been asked. I mean, most people don't ask me about how you did your abortion. That's usually a shut-off thing. They don't usually pick it up. Mm. and run with it mm. at all. But the same with sex education and masturbation. But we should talk about that stuff more, maybe. I think so, yeah. Now that is one of the original Brazen women, Dame Margaret Sparrow. In the next episode of Brazen, which is also out now, we hear from Deborah Small, a US lawyer and activist who's fighting the war on, the war on drugs. So I find it particularly perverse and hypocritical that we would have a war on drugs as a country that built its wealth on drugs. Now, as always, you can subscribe to Brazen in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do that if you haven't already. And while you're doing it, maybe flick us a review and keep visiting the website brazen.world for more content. Brazen's hosted by me, Susie Ferguson, and was created by me, Lou O'Reilly, Vic McLennan and David Cormack. Brazen is edited by Melody Thomas and engineered by William Saunders. The theme is Be Who You Are by Edie. Our artwork is by Pepper Raccoon and transcriptions are done by Emma Hart. Kaki te ano.